0: Todd's Road Campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. What a gift this church is. Uh, to hear Gabe preach that sermon during the children's message this morning uh, kind of made me feel redundant today, uh, but uh, to, to hear the wisdom of, of how good love is. I to hear Janelle play Open the Eyes of My Heart, one of my favorite songs I ever played on the guitar. It's, it's the one I learned how to play open chords in. At least in, in the key we played, it, it was E, B, A, and, or A minor, and then one C sharp minor seven. That was always weird to get to, but if you played it fast enough, you could kind of just fake it. Uh, but the words are so powerful, this idea that we would invite God to, to open ourselves up to him and to acknowledge his holiness, and then to watch Savannah walk up and do that like it's nothing. I could spend the rest of my life working on that song, and I can't do that. Uh, The Spirit of Christ working in and through her gifts and through the gifts of our children and through uh, the gifts of you, our church, uh, is astonishing to watch. And uh, it's it's a privilege to get to see God uh, work in and through you. Thank you. Would you pray with me? God, your Spirit has so clearly been at work uh, preparing for today and uh, preparing us for today. As we prepare to hear a fresh word from you today, would you open the eyes of our hearts to to see your revelation in the text and to see how you are revealing yourself through your spirit even today? Uh, Where we have uh, hardened our own hearts, would you soften them? Where our spirit uh, has become disagreeable, would you uh, make it right? And Lord, would you pour your spirit out upon us? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want us to practice a little holy imagination this morning. Uh, pretend that you have uh, somehow been able to step back in time to uh, the first century, living in the town of Corinth. You're, uh, you have no awareness of what time looks like today. You're, you're a, a citizen of Paul's Corinth. You live in this town that is uh, a mecca of, uh, of indulgence, this city with uh, temple after temple after temple where Zeus and Athena are uh, held uh, in high esteem. This place with none of the modern amenities we have grown to know and love. There is no Kroger. Uh, sorry, Georgia Stamper. There is no ship who is going to uh, pick up our groceries and bring them to the house. There is no uh, Uber Eats or DoorDash. Uh, there's a whole entirely way of engaging uh, with life in the city. Uh, Food is primarily uh, brought in the kind of farmer's market, this open-air shopping area. And the primary food of the people of Corinth is like porridge and olives and uh, bread. And if you're really lucky, like a fish relish made with the scraps of fish. Uh, Meat is not a regular part of your diet unless you uh, are part of the aristocracy, unless you're uh, well-to-do. You, you go to their equivalent of restaurants, which is the temple. Uh, these, these temple complexes for the various gods of their day uh, would have their worship area where you would uh, perform your sacrifices and pray uh, you know, about love or about sex or about money or whatever it is that you are appealing to that god for. But then downstairs, there'd be a gathering area. And, and in this area, you would come in and uh, you would share a meal. Usually it was the men... Uh, the women weren't regularly invited into this process, but you would, you would come in and, uh, and it would be uh, a hedonistic, uh, self-indulgent fest. This room that probably held seven to ten people at most would gather together and they'd feast on the best meat from the sacrifices upstairs. Uh, when those were done, they'd be brought down and they'd be cooked and people would delight in uh, the fattest of foods. They would uh, imbibe on the uh, most delicious of wines and they would practice some of the most um, disturbing uh, sexual things you could think of. Uh, the, the blending of lines between uh, church and commerce of, or uh, not church, of temple and commerce of, uh, of eating and sustaining yourself versus indulgence is this weird Line that we struggle to understand. Uh, they'd have their parties and then they'd go home and they'd they'd go about their lives and whatever meat was left would then go to the farmers market. You'd have kind of like a, a pop up stand from your local temple selling the leftover whatever you had sacrificed and and this is expensive meat. You don't picture Joe Corinthian walking up and getting this. This is if you can afford it. You're probably rolling up in your uh, royal blue robes or your your uh, your reigning purple. Uh, meat in the city is directly connected to the worship of these Greco Roman gods. And it carries with it this, this stigma in our minds, this uh, full, broader picture of indulgence and, and debauchery in uh, sexual craziness. There is no Critchfield meets meats up the street. It's, it's tainted by whatever happens in these rooms. And we seem to, to have two groups dealing with how do you deal with this. Paul, Paul has received a letter from the wise Corinthians. This is the group who are probably wealthier. It's the ones who are probably more influenced by the Stoics and the Epicureans, by the, the Gnostics, to look and say, let us reason. And they'll say, rightly. There's there's only one God, right? There's uh, the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who has taken on flesh in Jesus. There's one God. So these aren't idols. So this is just meat, right? There's nothing bad about this meat. Let's imagine the other crowd, who's part of the Corinthian church, a crowd who uh, probably delights when they get some of this fish relish, who who primarily exist on porridge and on bread and on olives who's watching this uh, richer, more educated, more snooty crowd uh, still participate in the life of this temple to show up and to eat this meat and to be around whatever else was going on. You're seeing them go out like it's nothing and buy the leftovers from the farmer's market. And you're wondering, how can this possibly be? We know, we've heard what happens in there. How can you separate uh, eating this meat From everything that goes with it. And so they're they're forcing Paul to address, can we eat the meat or not? Paul's a a master pastor, but more than that, he's a master uh, rhetorician. Paul's going to write back and say, of course you're right. Uh, In theory, there's nothing uh, spiritually powerful about this meat Because the gods to whom it offered are are not real gods. There is only one God. You are are so wise. But there's a problem. Your wisdom comes at the expense of love. You're you're compartmentalizing this and acting like it's no big deal, but there's a whole part of your church that you confess to be part of that, that you do life with who are horrified by this. There's a whole group of folks who can't separate that this this meat is given to these gods, that it is consumed in these environments of self-indulgence, that it is perpetuating a system of idolatry. And if you can't see past yourself to care about them, uh, we have a big problem. So let let me tell you uh, what you need to understand. What you really need to understand is that even though it might not inherently be wrong, it is wrong you're harming your brethren your brothers and sisters in Christ you're causing them to stumble and to struggle and so even though there is nothing inherently wrong in itself of this meat you shouldn't eat it uh, if it means protecting one brother or sister I'm never going to eat meat again you might have knowledge but you don't have love if you don't care for the whole community There's something inauthentic about what you're doing. This is a hard one to wrap my head around, if I'm being honest. You know... If we talk about the, the passages about sexual ethics, at least those, those seem to translate more into our modern culture, right? If we're talking about the passages and dealing with proper worship, those seem to translate into our culture. But this idea of food sacrificed to animals and the uh, rightness or wrongness of consuming it, for me, has been hard to translate. Um, and so I've had to step back and, and get less in the specifics and more in the generals and begin to ask myself, what are some things that inherently are not good or bad, Things that have no built in morality to them, but yet can become problematic. Uh, this morning in Sunday school, Juan nice, uh talked about the ways that uh, the internet can become a source of evil. There is nothing morally wrong with the internet in and of itself, right? There is uh, no inherent uh, vice to the internet. And yet, so much of what that happens on there is deformative and deconstructive. How we use it uh, adds a moral weight to it. Alcohol, in and of itself has no moral uh, rightness or wrongness, But so many of us have seen the way that that uh, has caused problems in families and homes and lives and in churches. The four-letter words that we tell our kids not to say and that we're embarrassed if they do say them in front of other people, they have no moral power in and of themselves, but yet they can be a major stumbling block for someone to participate in the life of faith. Money has no inherent moral standing, but the way we use it can surely harm other people. The broader systems and structures of our society uh, might not inherently be evil, but have been used for evil. They uh, have been tools to trample upon uh, folks at every margin to to keep women down, to harm persons of color, to uh, push uh, LGBTQ people back into a closet. Paul, I think, is inviting them to consider how do you live in community? How do you set aside uh, the things that maybe even be fine for you in order to care for others? And so that's become the question Felsha and I have been asking ourselves this week as we work through the text. What are those things that probably have no inherent moralness one way or another to them, but yet which have become stumbling blocks for our brothers and sisters? What are the things in our lives that, that, uh, that we don't maybe see as a problem, but yet cause so many problems for others. You know, I was, when I was a kid, I always thought my dad was weird because he would drink a beer at home with his friends, right? But he worked in our youth group and he would never get a beer in public. And, and our family we were raised, there was not an inherent problem with beer but he was so worried that a kid would see him drinking this beer and not have this broader context of, of talking about the reflexive alcohol. They might have someone in their family who has been an alcoholic. They might know someone struggling with it. It might have caused damage in their life. And so he, he wouldn't drink a beer in public. Uh, Twitter, for me, is a place that uh, brings out the worst in me. Um, it's a place that, uh, for me, has no... Uh, foundational good or evil to it but yet if I'm not careful at all I find myself causing harm for so many Facebook is a place where uh, there is no inherent uh, good or bad to it but it is used in a deformative way that harms those who disagree with you or don't feel like you or don't vote like you and man scripture is full of stories about the problems of money People like to draw the line that the problem of evil evil is not money, it's the worship of money. It's awfully hard to to separate that line of having money and worshiping money. And it's been a tool for uh, oppression and injustice. Rising to political power is not inherently morally good or morally bad, but so often it corrupts and destroys and causes harm across the land. What is there in your life? What's that thing that that probably is fine on its own, that is causing harm to your broader community? What is that thing that you need to examine and say, hey, maybe it's lawful, but it's not good? What's that thing that uh, might be permissible, that is controlling your community's life? What's that argument you could just set aside what's that what's that way that you can truly love I think the answer is probably different for all of us and it probably changes throughout the course of our days and our weeks and our years and then once we identify it how do we stand firm against it Uh, Much of my life, uh, my prayer life and my scripture study was about me doing the good and avoiding the evil uh, to avoid hell. Uh, The the older I've gotten, the more I've come to understand these as means of grace that help me uh, to live the fullness of the great commandments. To to love God and to love neighbor. These means of grace become ways to help us uh, look beyond ourselves and look for the whole of uh, humanity's goodness. They become tools to help us uh, grow in God's love, to examine things morally, and to look through the lens of our ecclesiology, to to see how we might be a people who love well. Sandy was talking about it in Sunday school this morning, about this gift of growing in holiness. This gift of God's grace continually be pouring out in ways that we can uh, look more clearly and see more clearly those things that are harmful. Those things that uh, that destroy our community. What means of grace might you avail yourself of this week in new and powerful ways, inviting the Spirit to work in and through you, to examine your life and to see those things that are causing harm. I would even invite you to consider those things that others are doing to you that are causing you harm. Those things that uh, they might be doing that are not inherently good or evil. But that are harming you and 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 consider to invite God's spirit to help you figure out how to set up a hedge of protection around that those things that uh, are causing you to suffer in community are there relationships you need to redefine are there people you need to unfollow on facebook are there uh, tv shows you need to stop watching because the way they promote the love of money on our own we tend to fall back on our knowledge We tend to appeal to what we know to be true. And yet Gabe so helpfully pointed to to looking for the fruits of the Spirit, these things that manifest out of God's abundant love in us and our love of others. How might you invite God to help you bear that fruit instead of causing harm? How might God help you bring out the fruit in others instead of living uh, under the weight of their sin? This series in Corinthians has been uh, for me quite powerful to think uh, already that there are things that are okay but that aren 't good to think about how we think last week we talked about uh, that we can 't settle into easy answers instead we need to think deeply we need to think more integratively we need to to recognize the the Evils of uh, simple answers. We need to wrestle with what it means to love God and love labor, what it means to flee from evil and to pursue the good. And then let those inform how we understand those things that are our modern examples of food sacrifice to animals, uh, to idols. How might we reflect? How might we examine that? And how much might we trust God to take control of our lives? To set us free from those things uh, and to point others to him. Every week at our table, uh, we come and we confess our sins. Those things we have done and those things we have left undone. We confess how we have not loved our neighbors ourselves. And friends, this passage is all about not loving our neighbors and then we come and we encounter a God who showed us what love really looks like. A God who took on flesh in Christ. A God who gave himself up for us. And A God who pours out his spirit that we might continue in relationship and grow in love.